When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's Martini Time! Hello, tech fans, and welcome aboard to the latest Tech Sideline podcast originating each and every week from the TSL offices in Blacksburg. I'm your host, Evan Hughes, and we're pleased to be joined, of course, each and every week by founder Will Stewart, who's straight ahead to me. To my right, we've got Chris Coleman, managing editor. Guys, we are in the last week of September, and I feel like it was just yesterday. We just did the first podcast in August, and the season is slowly but surely. It's flying by. Well, it's been a strange season to begin with, with the first game being on a Monday, and then just and then a five-day turnaround, and then the game gets canceled the next week, and now we lose to Old Dominion. So it doesn't seem like anything is normal about this season so far. You know, it has not been boring, come yeah, to think yeah, of it. Yeah, that's true. You know, I, I've, I figured Virginia Tech would lose at Florida State. I figured they'd play East Carolina, and I figured they'd win at ODU. So, um, you know, boring is sometimes good. Uh, not boring is sometimes bad. We've got a mix of both, I guess. Well, we were joking before the podcast. We, we really don't have a ton of talk about this week, do we? Yeah. <laughs> no. A lot to talk about this week on the Tech Sideline Podcast. Here's what we have coming up for you guys today. First of all, we're going to recap in its entirety the Old Dominion game from the game itself to what this means uh, for both programs and uh, kind of just the impact of what last weekend will mean for the rest of the season for Virginia Tech. We will talk about that. We've got your Tech Sideline Poll Question of the Week. We've got fan questions, and we have just a lot of interesting things to dive into. Uh, Of course, we're so excited to have each and every podcast presented by the Fisher Law Firm this year. It's Virginia's trusted DUI and traffic defense firm dedicated to defending individuals charged with traffic-related offenses. From their offices in Blacksburg and Roanoke, the Fisher Law Firm handles cases throughout the Commonwealth of Virginia. To date, the firm has defended more than 15,000 people charged with moving violations. For a free consultation, call anytime, day or evening, toll-free at 1-800-680-7031 or email us at info at fisherlegal.com. Of course, we'll also be talking about you know the new quarterback and Ryan Willis, who will be taking over the program this week, Josh Jackson Indert, and we'll get to uh, Trevon Hill. We'll get to all of that in just a little bit. But I think we should start off the podcast with some good news. And yes. we have some great news to talk about. And with yesterday, uh, starting on September 25th being the Drive for 25 day, of course, Virginia Tech Athletics putting that on with Tech Sideline, of course. And Virginia Tech, as we're recording this podcast on Wednesday afternoon, we have found out that Virginia Tech has raised $871,000 in a day. And there were a ton of donors and so many generous people who gave their uh, money and made contributions to Virginia Tech Athletics, and this will help the athletic department in so many big ways. But, uh, Will, I know this is something that the athletic department partnered with Tech Sideline on, and I'm sure you have to be very proud of uh, you, the, the the readers and the people who subscribe to Tech Sideline that for giving uh, back to Virginia Tech Athletics. 
So I wouldn't say they exactly partnered with us. So here, here's how it played out. So they're doing the drive for 25 days. It's 25 hours from noon Tuesday to 1 o'clock Wednesday. And to get some extra push for it, they allowed people to sign up as ambassadors. And an ambassador basically has a custom-coded link that they share with people to get people to donate to the Hokie Club. So the purpose of this thing was to, um, you know, to raise money, sure, but it was also to get new members into the Hokie Club. If you've been following the Drive for 25 stuff for the last couple of years, they've talked a lot about the Hokie Scholarship Fund and how much money they raised for that. Well, they, with this event, I think, this is my interpretation, that they shifted their focus from how much money are we raising to are we bringing in new members. So out of this 871,000, that was 2,344 donors who donated that. Not all of them are new Hokie Club members. Some of them are, some of them aren't. I think they're going to have to sift through that later. Um, so in, in interviewing Bill Lansden or talking to Bill Lansden, the head of the Hokie Club ahead of time, I asked him, I said, can Tech Sideline sign up as an ambassador? And he said, sure. So we signed up to be an ambassador, so we had this specially coded link, et cetera, et cetera. And so they could track our donations. And out of all the ambassadors they had, they offered incentives for people to do a good job of attracting new members. And there's five, four or five things they're going to give away to their top four or five ambassadors. It's uh, uh, tickets to one of the suites for uh, Notre Dame game, Miami game, courtside table uh, for the Duke basketball game, home game when that comes, which is at the end of the season. And I think one of the other things was being on the field for Enter Sandman. So these are the things that they were incentivizing the ambassadors with. And uh, of the 871,000, I'm sorry, I don't have the numbers right right in front of me. Maybe you're looking at Tech Sideline's Twitter feed there. Uh, what what did how many donors did Tech Sideline have out of? 77, I think. Yeah. And 85,000 dollars worth. Chris Coleman's got a uh, golden got a, memory. Oh wow! Normally I don't. Yeah, so, Spot on. So of the 871,000, um, 85,000 or so was, was donated by people who clicked through our link. And again, that was 477 people. And because we were the only large organization to, to serve as an ambassador, we kind of ran away with it. The next closest person, I think, was about uh, 50 uh, um, contributors. And that was, ironically enough, OxVT, uh, who is... Ox does infographics for us that we use in our articles, and, and he's kind of uh, kind of his own personality on Twitter, and he's, he decided to get involved halfway through the day, and he did quite well. You know, I think he ran away with second place. I think the closest person to him at 35. So anyway, that, that's a lot of talking. Um, the final figure of 871000 includes somewhere in the neighborhood of about $350,000 in matching gifts. All right? So... You could contribute to any number of sports, and that was matched up to $5,000 per sport. So that probably equates to about, depending upon how you count the sports at Tech, probably winds up being about $90,000 to that method. And then Board of Visitors member, and can't remember what year he graduated off the top of my head, but 98. Mihol Sangani, I'm, I guess I'm pronouncing that right. I know Mihol, but uh, um, so he and his wife pledged 250000 in matching gifts just you know not not sports specific or anything like that so if you add the 90,000 or so to me holes uh, 250,000 that's where you get you know about $350,000 of matching gifts so the donors the the other donors put in I think about half a million so 
everybody's asking what was the Hokie Club's goal? How many people did they want to add? How much money did they want to raise? Well, they didn't say ahead of time, you know. But my interpretation is that those are pretty good numbers. And I think this is a thing that generated a lot of interest. And I think it'll be bigger next year because I think one of the things that's going to happen next year is other organizations seeing how much traffic and donations tech sideline generated. I think other ones are going to get involved. I think this thing will be bigger. I think it'll build over time. And what you're looking for here is a change in the culture of giving. Virginia Tech has a history, athletically, of people giving to get better seats and better parking. Other than that, they're not donating. So I think what Virginia Tech is looking to do is to get people to donate even if they don't get perks for it. Just get them involved. Get them to uh, join the Hokie Club, contribute. Because as you know, the more money you have, the more likely your programs are to be successful. So uh, I thought overall the, the day was uh, was uh, pretty successful. I'm, ple I'm pleased with what Texas Island did, and I'm pleased with what the Hokie Club did overall. And I will uh, I will interview Bill Lanston soon and get his thoughts on it. Again, a great day for Virginia Tech Athletics, a drive for 25 day from noon yesterday on the 25th to 1 o'clock p.m. today on the 26th. All right, before we get to Old Dominion, because we've got a lot of talking to get to, let's get to Will's Twitter bio for his song lyric of the week. And I was saying before we went on, it is my goal. I just can't <laughs> wait for one week to sit here and to look at his bio and go, I know that song. And I love 80s music. That is my go-to jam. So this, this, I, I, this latest one is not 80s. This is the lyric. I am not the only traveler who has not repaid his debt. That's actually a modern song. And, and I'll tell you if, you, if you listen to Sirius XM, The Spectrum, mm. you've heard that lyric. You'll recognize that. We will get to that at the end of the podcast. Again, one more time. I am not the only traveler who has not repaid his debt. All right, let's jump right into it and get into this Old Dominion Virginia Tech game that took place down in Norfolk over the weekend. 49-35 to Monarchs over the Hokies. Will was there. Chris was tweeting. I enjoyed his tweets throughout the game. Um, I want to talk about this game as the game itself first, and then we can get into the bigger impact of what it can mean for both sides. Let's talk about the game itself. We've had a couple of days to digest it and think about it, and when you look back at it now, tell me one thing that stands out the most about the game itself. Go ahead, Chris. For me, I think it's Virginia uh, Tech's tackling, or lack thereof. And the, you know, they just want physical they, they didn't run through guys they just kind of grabbed the hold of guys legs and just kind of hung on and even a lot of those sideline throws to ODU wide receivers you know Caleb Farley and Bryce Watts would be there hanging around their legs and the ODU receivers would be stepping out of bounds and are just staring down the Tech defensive back like the DBs couldn't couldn't bring them down um, it's not aggressive tough tackling you know you want to see you want to you want to wrap guys up and try and have leg drive and drive through their bodies and, and tackling is I don't know what percentages you assign to it, but it's part technique and it's part want to. And uh, you didn't see a whole lot of either for Virginia Tech's defense on Saturday. Yeah, if you arrive with the want to and with the technique, the, the guy you're going after is going down. If, if you're lacking either one, you can miss a tackle. For me, I think it was two things. It was, and I think this is really what bothers Justin Fuente the most, was the lack of discipline, the way the team melted down mentally and emotionally later in the game with personal fouls and that sort of thing. And then the other thing is, I don't like that Virginia Tech lost this game, but if you go back and watch the film, and I don't want to sound like an apologist or, 
or a coach, you got to hand it to ODU. They made the plays. They had some physical receivers. They had a physical running back. They had a quarterback who time will tell if he'll ever play a game that good again. You know, um, he was dropping dimes. Some of the coverage wasn't great, but some of it was. I think it was their next to last touchdown where uh, whoever the VT defensive back was, it may have been Caleb Farley, was hanging on the receiver, grabbing his jersey on the shoulder. And a kid caught the ball anyway. You know, now if you go back and watch the show, Reggie Floyd had a chance to, to de-cleat him and didn't quite arrive in time. So, you know, Tech shares some responsibility. But, you know, ODU, it's kind of like that 2014 East Carolina game. ECU made some plays in that game. And, and ODU, you know how football goes, man. When you get back on your heels and he gets on his toes, it's anybody's ball game. And that's what happened. They were just playing out their honeys. Let's put it that way. Yeah, Chris, you know, when I, th- when I think back and I was able to watch the entire game quarters one through four, it just seemed like in the first half Tech was never quite able to pull away. You know, they kept letting Old Dominion hang around. And I wouldn't say that was the case in the second half because Old Dominion just started to make more and more plays. And, and to be quite honest, it just seemed like kind of what Will and you guys are talking about the drive, they just wanted it more. They wanted it for their program. They wanted it at home. And it just seemed like everything was going their way in the second half. Yeah, Tech had a chance to get up in that game 14 nothing. Then on the second play from scrimmage, Hezekiah Grimes will drop what would have been a touchdown pass. And then, uh, well, uh, let's see. Did Tech get the ball? No, Odie, you got the ball first, right? I don't recall, but you're, you're headed down the right path where t- Grimsley had a chance to score a touchdown. ODU got the ball first. ODU got stopped. ODU got the ball first. They went three and out with Stephen Williams. Then Tech comes out. They almost hit a touchdown right. pass. Uh, so maybe, I, maybe I'm wrong about then I think ODU, uh, I think the the first drive of their backup quarterback, they also didn't score. That's right. Yeah, so Tech then had an 87-yard touchdown run with Stephen Peoples on their second drive. So Tech could have scored on the first two drives and been up 14 nothing. Should have been. Um, so you don't know how that affects Old Dominion's psyche. Getting down for you're 0-3, right? Everybody's expecting you to get destroyed. There might even be some – lack of confidence in the back of your own mind to a certain extent. And now you're down 14 nothing. Um, you know, you got to take advantage of those opportunities. And, and we think Tech's receivers are improved this year, and I, I still believe they are. But they didn't have a good game the other day. I mean, uh, Grimsley dropped that one that would have been a touchdown. Hazleton dropped three that were just over the middle. It's like he's expecting the safety to come down and whack him every time. And he's a big physical guy. He shouldn't be worrying about things like that. But that last drive uh, of the game, well, not quite the last drive of the game, but that fourth down. The last drive that mattered. Right, the last drive that mattered uh, for Virginia Tech. They had a fourth down, and Hazelton would have picked up the first down, and they were in a position to tie the game, but he dropped the pass. So drops by the wide receivers potentially cost Virginia Tech 14 points in this game. And guess what? They lost by 14. Yeah. Not not to let the defense off the hook, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Will, I want to go back to something that you talked about, and that was Justin Fuente after the game alluding to how one of the things he was most disappointed in were the personal fouls and the unsportsmanlike conducts. And I thought he hit, he hit the nail on the head. This was the first time this team faced adversity the entire season. Everybody expected it to come on Labor Day night at Florida State, and that was the way his team responded. And And I think that you know, for me, someone who's been following Virginia Tech football for quite some time, that this was really one of the first games I can remember where I just kept shaking my head, saying that is that's really an un, uh, uncommon trait you really see from Hokie teams where that many unsportsmanlike penalties thrown in the loss. 
You see it from time to time. Like the, the, the one example that always comes back to me is the 2005 ACC championship game when, when Tech was 10 and probably 11 and 1, Chris, yeah, and, and, and went down to play a not very good Florida State team. And they battled back and forth for the first half. And then Florida State started to take control of this thing in the second half. And Virginia Tech wound up with 17 penalties in that game. And a lot of them were of the personal foul variety late in the game. So we've seen it before. Granted, that's a whole different era, a whole different coaching staff. Um, I'm trying to think, you know, the guys who committed the bad penalties during the ODU game. Um, You know, guys that – it's not exactly your senior leaders, you they're know. They're not exactly your seniors, senior leaders, but they're both fourth-year players, redshirt juniors, and they should know. They ought to know better. Right. Uh-huh. And I'm trying to remember how somebody phrased it on our message boards. They, they said that uh, Reggie Floyd was uh, uh, running a lot of group counseling sessions or something like that or doing a lot of teaching. Yeah. There, there were a couple of guys on Tech's team that kept their heads, but there were quite a few guys that did not. Now, for the record, I, I, I think that the personal foul call on, on Housham Gaines was a bunch of crap. Um, the whistle blew. He had an offensive lineman shoving him five yards downfield. And it, this wasn't behind the ref's back. It was pretty much right in front of him. Correct. And then House retaliated, and he got called. Those should have been offset. He shouldn't should have retaliated. He should have flopped. Man, that's easy to say when it got – well, see, Trayvon would have flopped. Trayvon would have flopped. Uh, Trayvon flopped against UVA last year, something much less egregious than what we saw in this game. And he got rewarded a 15-yard penalty, and he admitted on Twitter afterwards that he flopped. But I don't like flopping, to be honest. I think think if they catch you doing it and they can – it's, and if it's within beyond all doubt, then I think you should get suspended for flopping. So, That's so sure. Thing. So Gaines shares but, some responsibility yeah, here, he but flopped. but the ref should yeah. have called it offsetting. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think the other thing is too is that one that's going to be fixed, and that's something I think that makes Coach Fuente such a great coach is that you know he understands that you know that that I, I don't think you're going to see that happen again, and that's something that you know when they talk about each week they look at things going around the country and kind of bring it in as a team. I think that's something that'll easily be fixed um, moving forward the season however I do want to spend some time talking defensively because you know Tech's a 28 and a half point favorite going into this game they give up 49 points at home and and I'll never forget the commentator saying going to that last drive and he goes I never thought I'd say this but can Bud Foster get a stop against this old Dominion offense and I, I I think the game plan was was there. And again, keep in mind Larusa as the backup. I don't know how much of time and preparation was put into him, but I would have never thought in a million years, even if Old Dominion were to pull out the win, that they would have Tech's defense would have given up forty nine points. Uh, yeah, it's hard to believe um, a five eight, you know, excuse me, five eleven, hundred eighty pound quarterback like that former walk on. And he took a beating in the first half. I mean, Tech sacked him three times, and they gave him some big hits on blitzes and things like that, and he kept getting up. I, I halfway expected him to stay down at, at some point, but, uh, you know, he was a tough guy. But to me, it was the balance. And I know you really didn't get the running game going until later, but once they did, they were unstoppable when they could run the ball and, and throw the ball. Uh, in, in, in looking at the way the defense played, and I wrote this in my article on Monday, what worries me is the things that are not quickly correctable. There are some things in that game that are that are correctable. Um, if you look at uh, um, Eric Carr that writes for us, uh, um, I don't think Eric did an article for this week, but I was watching him on Twitter, and he's posting on our boards, and, and he was making points about the techniques of the corners and how they were not using good technique on Saturday. Um, that's fairly correctable fairly quick, but 
a lack of good open field tackling acumen, uh, um, a lack of physicality at certain points. Like a guy's not going to get magically stronger overnight, and some guys are not going to magically turn from bad open field tacklers into good open field tacklers overnight. There are technique things you can improve. So, you know, one of the things I've been telling people is that I don't. <laughs> I would be shocked if the defense was that bad at any point the rest of the year. But there are certain parts of it which are not going to get better right away. So you got to fix the things you can fix and then proceed forward. One thing we talked about in the first two podcasts of the year leading up to the season was that when you have a team that has 14 of its 22 starters as underclassmen, there are going to be growing pains and there are going to be uh, teachable moments. However, I just, uh, you know, I, I don't think that necessarily we thought it was going to come against Old Dominion. But despite the loss, I think there are ways that you can paint this as a positive one that it is is early in the season it is in September and this is not something that's happening in November it's happening in September it's teachable you still have a ball by week coming uh later in the season to work from but again this is something that you know again this is not a senior-led team by any stretch of the imagination the talent's there and I think this is something that we might see throughout the season or just moments where the youth is going to show yeah no doubt about that um I expected I'm not going to say I expected the, the worst Bud Foster defensive performance in history at some point this year, but I expected a bad game or two this year. And that's not hyperbole, by the way. That, that is the literally worst. Literally the worst game yeah. in terms of yards right. that a Bud Foster team has ever allowed. I think it's the, the most yards a Tech defense has allowed since the Maryland game in 93, I believe. And I, I was at that game. There was a brawl in the middle of the game. Somehow Tech won that game 55-28 despite giving up. Like 600. Wow. Yeah, Milanovic was going up and down the field for Maryland. He, he he passed for he actually passed for more yards than Larusa passed for the other day. Yeah. It's just Maryland couldn't put it in the end zone and kept turning it over. And ODU they did not turn it over. They were they they didn't they barely put it on the ground and they certainly didn't throw any interceptions. Yeah. Forgot to quote your original question. Just, just about the, <laughs> just the, the, you know, the, this team is going to show youth oh, in yeah. spots, I, and and you just don't know when it's going to come. You're right, you don't know when it's going to come. I, I expected it to happen at some point this year, but I didn't expect it to happen this time around. Um, honestly, now that I'm, we'll, we'll talk about Duke later, but now that I'm doing some research on Duke in preparation for, for my game preview on Thursday, they've got a lot of experience. They've only got two true freshmen in their entire depth chart. So I guess they're only playing two true freshmen this year. Uh, they've got, like, I think four of their top six receivers are redshirt seniors going up against Virginia Tech's young, young secondary. So this is a game this week where if you just factor in experience, if Virginia Tech had smacked Old Dominion last week, then maybe they come into this week feeling like they felt going into ODU week, you know, where they think they're better than they are and, Maybe last week happens happens to them this coming week. I, I don't know. Who, who knows? Um, but, yeah, it's definitely you can learn a lot of lessons from that game. And hopefully they learn it very quickly because they're going to have another uh, – let's face it, this is a more significant challenge this Saturday night. Duke is a much, much better football team than Old Dominion. Well, before we talk about this game in a, in a broader spectrum and look at it just about the impact and everything, I do want to get your thoughts on being at the game. Uh, it did look like there were a – Great turnout of Hokies there uh, in the in the maroon and orange because it was a whiteout for Old Dominion. What was the obviously it's besides the fourth quarter and Tech losing? What was the atmosphere like? And could you tell that the seven five seven Hokies really did show up at Old Dominion? I keep telling everybody it was a great time except for the game. You know when, when we talked about it last week, I said the two things I was going to pay attention to were the stadium and uh, Lala Elijah Davis. 
Lala barely played, so that wasn't a thing. And the stadium wasn't as bad as people had made it out to be. It's small, yes, but I'd read some article about the porta potties, and I didn't encounter the need to use a porta potty my entire time there. I sat over on the visitor's side. When I went down to the restroom, I was in and out a lot faster than I am on Lane Stadium's east side. Concessions were fine. I had no complaints about the stadium. The fact that, you know, this game was played on the road is a whole other thing you can debate, probably for the entirety of a podcast. But I thought, I thought overall the, uh, the environment was good. Uh, the lots I tailgated in were close to the stadium, and <clears throat> there were a lot of Hokies there. I would say in the tailgate lots, I don't want to go as far as 50-50, but there were a lot of Tech fans in those close tailgate lots. And in the stands, you know, I'm, I'm not good at estimating stuff like this, but if there are 20,000 people there, maybe 8,000 of them were Tech fans, 7,000, something like that. They didn't get a chance to make much noise. You know, they did at times, but they never really got a chance to get going and keep it sustained. So, uh, you know, overall, I I have no criticisms of the operation. The ODU fans, even after winning, the ODU fans were fine. They were very nice, you know. So uh, um, I I have no complaints or anything negative to say about the whole experience other than the scoreboard. Quick reminder, of course, of the Tech Sideline Podcast is proudly presented by the Fisher Law Firm each and every week. Call toll-free anytime, day or evening at 1-800-680-7031. Let's talk about this game in a broader um, in a broader sense of what this, you know, I, so much talk about the 2010 loss to James Madison, and I think that people are jumping to conclusions and talking about this. Of course, the biggest difference is JMU still an FCS school, Old Dominion FBS program. Yes, they're outside of the Power Five. Yes, they've never beaten a Power Five program before until Tech. But when you look at this game, where do you rank this? And I, you know, it's a tough conversation to have. But is this game one of the worst losses in Tech history? I rank it second behind the Temple loss in '98. Uh, the reason I have Temple first is because Tech was a much more experienced football team in 1998. They are much better defense, um, and that game was at home. Um, you know, Temple had already lost to William and Mary two weeks earlier. Um, this game was on the road with a young, young team. Uh, you know, Temple went two and nine that year. Uh, this ODU team, who knows what they're going to do? They're one and three. They're not good, but uh, just simply the simple fact that Virginia Tech has so much youth on defense, and that '98 defense was a top five, top ten defense nationally, and they had a lot more experience. And that game was at home. So from that standpoint, that loss is more surprising than this one, in my opinion. Uh, I think this – I was 15 at the time, and I didn't watch the Temple game, though. So uh, I was uh, – where was I? I was in the state of North Carolina at some kind of family reunion type function and uh, saw the score on TV afterwards, and I was like, no way. That's got to be a misprint. <laughs> right? uh, yeah, I have a similar experience. Yeah. Um, so so and I, whereas I watched this one live, um, I will say that uh, – after the James Madison loss, I uh, I wasn't mad after the James Madison loss. I wasn't even upset. I wasn't embarrassed. I, I didn't really feel anything after the JMU loss because I was still angry and mad and upset about the Boise State loss, which, quite frankly, is why they lost to James Madison. They, they let Boise State beat them twice, and I don't think the James Madison loss meant anything, and Virginia Tech went on to win the ACC. Uh, the only thing that happened that year to me is that, yet again, Virginia Tech could not win the big nationally televised game that everybody was watching, and that upset me more than losing to, to James Madison. Um, I've, I think this is probably – I've never been more embarrassed after a Tech loss than I was this one. 
Will, where does this rank for you? You know, everybody's talking about, and Chris just did it, talking about the Temple game and the, and the JMU game. Um, for the Temple game, I wasn't there either. I was actually up at a Penn State game that day, and um, they, they came over the – let's see, I was walking through a Penn State uh, bookstore, and I think the score of – I think Virginia Tech was up 17-7 or something like that. They were up 17-0 at half. It could, could be. Uh, so I probably saw a 17 nothing score and thought, well, that's underway. Okay, no problem. Go to the uh, Penn State game, and oh, by the way, I'm wearing a Virginia Tech sweatshirt at the Penn State game. And the PA announcer, and I've told this story before, the PA announcer comes on over the intercom and he goes, scores from around college football. Now, y'all got to remember, we didn't have smartphones and stuff back then. This is 1998. I had no clue what the score was. Nothing. Nobody was texting me. I wasn't reading tweets, none of that fun stuff. So the PA announcer comes on and he goes, scores from around the country, Temple 28. And I thought, well, how did Temple score 28 points, and why is he announcing the losing score first? <laughs> and then he said, Virginia Tech 24. And I literally left the Penn State game and went out to the car. I guess I'd left my cell phone in the car, called a buddy and said, what happened? You know, and, and he, he told me. So I have a similar experience. My point is I've never sat and watched that game. The only play I've ever seen from that game is a long pass that Temple completed and Ricky Hall dropping what would have been uh, the winning touchdown pass. Uh, JMU is a little different story. Um, but I, I think as far as the JMU game goes, I think you can totally blame the JMU game on Tech. Tech just played poorly that day. This is a situation where I think time will help us put it in better perspective. I'm not saying ODU is going to proceed to rip off eight straight wins or something like that. But if anything that resembles the team they had the other day shows up for the rest of the year, they'll win some ball games, And you'll look back and you'll go, Oh, yeah, they replaced that quarterback against us and took off. Yeah. Um, you can give some credit to ODU in this case. I, I'm not going to argue that by the end of the game, it, it was embarrassing the way Tech was just getting flat run over and the personal fouls and things like that. Yeah, you know, every now and then, you know, you're going to give up jump balls and things like that. We saw that happen to Virginia Tech in 2014 against uh, East Carolina the week after they beat Ohio State, and it was Brandon Faison giving up those jump balls. And Well, guess what? Brandon Faison's in the NFL now. You know, it, it happens, uh, even to really, really good players. Greg Stroman was a bad player early in his career. He couldn't defend anybody. But guess what? He's in the NFL now. You know, Bryce Watts and Caleb Farley, they're going to get better. Absolutely. Um, you, you know, there's, there's no reason to believe that they won't get better. History tells us that they're, they're going to get better. If you believe in Bud Foster, you know those guys are, are going to get better. Uh, but, yeah, to me, it wasn't that, so much that uh, as it was just getting physically run over late in the game like that and just not having any response and not hitting back, so to speak. Uh, and, I, and I'll say this, you know, I think Bobby Wilder made a, made a mistake last year by starting Stephen Williams as a 17-year-old true freshman when he wasn't ready. Because when you do that, and it's really tough to go back on a decision like that because you have to admit that you're wrong and you admit to that 17-year-old that you were wrong and, and he wasn't ready and things like that. And the guy, Stephen Williams is still only 18 years old. He's still not ready. You know, he's a true sophomore, but he's only 18. He's not ready. And they, they take him out and, uh, for a redshirt senior or junior or whatever Blake LaRusa is. I think he's a redshirt senior. And he's just much more ready to run the offense. He's not as big and as physical and as talented as Stephen Williams, but he's just got so much more experience at, at the college level. And I, I think, you know, they wouldn't have beaten Liberty, obviously, with the way that score was. But if you start LaRusa against FIU, a game in Charlotte. Uh, in Charlotte. I mean, you know, they lost that. Charlotte game by three. They lost the FIU game by eight. 
it's not inconceivable to say that Old Dominion would be three and one right now if they had made the right quarterback decision. So, so the irony of it is, you recall last week I said in the podcast, is Bobby Wilder in over his head? No, apparently not. It may be that Stephen Williams was in over his head. You're talking about an ODU team that went 10-3, and three, what, just a couple two years weeks ago? Yeah, two years ago and won a bowl game. The Bahamas Bowl, keep that in mind. Yeah. My, my favorite. That would be a sweet bowl I, game. I don't ever want to go to the Bahamas Bowl, but I really want to go. But I really want to go to the Bahamas Bowl. <laughs> So, um, so if I may be allowed to, to – well, first of all, it's, it's not an ODU podcast, but ODU's in a situation now where if they want to start LaRusso the rest of the year, they can actually redshirt Stephen Williams. That's right. They could. You know? But we don't need to analyze that further because, again, it's not an ODU podcast. But if I may be allowed to derail the podcast for what may be two to four minutes – Everybody's talking about, oh, the cornerbacks didn't look back. They didn't look back for the ball. They never look back for the ball. Here's the deal, folks. When you're in man-to-man coverage, you run with the receiver, and you look at the receiver. You don't turn around and look back at the quarterback. I got a little exercise for you. Go out in your yard and start running as fast as you can run, and then turn your head backwards and tell me if you slow down a little bit. Turning around and looking backwards means you're going to lose the man and you're going to get beat. So in man-to-man coverage, you look at the man, and you look straight at him, you look at his eyes, and at some point, if the ball's coming his way, he's going to reach up to catch it, and that's when you get your hands up in there. You get them up in between the two arms, and you disrupt the catch. That's how they're trained to defend. That's how it's done at the college level and in the NFL. You don't sit there and, and take peeks back at the quarterback. You're going to get massively burnt if you do that. The only situation where you're looking at the quarterback is when you're playing in a zone and you are reading the quarterback's eyes. So if you're in a football stadium and a guy in man-to-man coverage gets beat because he, quote, doesn't look back for the ball, unquote, stop that. People who know football will think you are a more – I don't want to insult a bunch of our readership because some of you may be saying that. That's just not the way it works, folks. That's how man coverage works. Now, there are certain – instances where you do look back and I remember Tori and Gray talking about this one time if you've got a guy on your hip and you are on him and you're actually a little ahead of him you can look back if you've got a guy pinned against the sideline I'm not talking you're about to get beat by a back shoulder throw but if you're running a deep route and you've got a good strong position on him you can look back but if you're trailing a guy which most defensive backs are in man-to-man coverage on that sort of fly route you don't look back so please don't sit there in the stands and yell that that's not how it works let me uh let me throw my thoughts in here as a former defensive back uh yes you're exactly right that's how defensive backs are taught they're taught to not look back uh now if you're in a situation where you're running with a receiver down the sideline and he looks back you're, you're taught to not look back until the receiver looks back and even then, don't do it unless you feel really confident that you're going to turn around and the ball is going to be right there. It's, it's more of a feel thing. You've got to remember that these guys aren't robots. You know? they don't have, they're not watching the game on TV right, and seeing everything that's going on. There's a certain feel you have to have for the game. And some guys have that feel and some guys don't. And for a guy like Caleb Farley, who was a high school quarterback, who just played his third game at quarterback ever, ever, as far as I know, um, it's, it's, you're, he's not going to have that feel at this stage of his career. I mean, that, that's just not, that's not something that's a realistic expectation to have for a player that age. And, and this is something that receivers work on. Receivers work on in man-to-man coverage. 
the art of not giving away that the ball's coming to you. You know, I'm, I'm sure it's something they work on a lot and think about a lot. It's like, when exactly do I reach up? If I reach up early, man, I'm toast. That guy's going to be all over me and he's going to break it up. And I'm sure they even work on turning their head a certain way and just not giving away with your eyes that the ball's about to be there. You know, th- these are intricacies that that most people don't understand. This is a real, you know, you're playing man-to-man coverage. You're not playing man-to-football coverage. You know, so there, there's a lot of stuff that goes on between uh, cornerbacks and wide receivers that I think your average person doesn't appreciate, me included. You know, there's an art to it on both sides. I played both positions. And, you know, there's certain things you do with, the, with your footwork. Uh, you know, you don't want to – these days they teach you not to chop your feet in and out of routes because if you begin chopping your feet, that defensive back knows that you're about to break your route off and cut it either to a slant on the inside or to an out or to a curl or, or something like that. So, you know, techniques has changed throughout the years, and it varies from coaches to coaches, but uh, it, it is kind of a chess match out there between wide receivers and defensive backs, and I've seen both sides of it. Uh, but, you know, one thing that I've always experienced, no matter who's coaching you in the secondary, yeah, they, they don't teach you to – they're not going to tell you to turn around unless, unless you're absolutely sure that you're going to pick it off or break it up because if you turn around – and when you turn around, that split second when you're turning, that ball goes right over your head. You lose the ball, and that guy's catching it. And you lose the man. And you lose the man. And it's a touchdown instead of a 30-yard gain or something like that. Yeah, so, so to kind of round out the discussion, Eric Carr said, when that ball comes down, you put your hand up into that basket and try to break it up, and you make the tackle. You know, It's not all about knocking the ball down. It's about making sure that guy doesn't – if he does catch it, he doesn't go any further than right there. So I'm just learning now that the if we had a Tech sideline football team, we'd be in good shape. We'd have Will as our coach. I did not know that Chris played. I could be the defensive backs coach. We could throw Corey out there. Uh, I'm happy to play as well. I think we've got a, a decent TSL football team. So, uh, anyways, that was definitely, definitely, I'm learning something new every day. Didn't know that you played, by the way, uh, there, Chris. So. Not in college. No, I, I know. It's still, hey. <laughs> Continuing on the TSL podcast presented each and every week by the Fisher Law Firm, Virginia's trusted DUI and traffic defense firm. We are like 40 minutes into this, and we still have and a we really bunch to talk about. Far, so yeah. uh, let's uh, let's kind of go speed and, and talk about uh, the two main storylines that came out of the game Saturday. Number one, I think we start with um, – the injury to Josh Jackson, uh, and he's going to be out indefinitely uh, at the moment. What currently uh, is a broken fibula. He did have surgery earlier this week, and I know you know we're thinking about as well as all Hokie, Hokie Nation that Josh gets better. You talk about a great great guy that the coaches praise and his leadership and you know what he brings to this team and on and off the field. Uh, so Coach Fuente stating at his press conference on Monday, they will turn to Ryan Willis, the transfer from Kansas who was really thrown into the fire on the road in what turned out to be a hostile environment in the fourth quarter on Saturday, performed well. But let's talk about Josh first. I'll start with you uh, first on this, Chris. How does Virginia Tech replace someone like Jax Jackson who doesn't turn the football over, who leads this team on and off the field and plays so so much more wise and mature beyond his years as just a redshirt sophomore? Well, that's a good question. I, I think uh, – I think – Coaches each year have to determine who their starting quarterback is based on, you know, not only experience level and talent and things like that, but which player's strengths fit each team, each specific team. I thought Josh Jackson was the absolute right choice as Virginia Tech's quarterback last season. Um, A.J. Bush as a backup was a turnover machine in practice. 
Richmond Tech had a great defense. They were going to keep opponents in the 20s or less. And as long as you didn't turn the ball over, you were most likely going to win. And that's Josh Jackson to a T. He can make enough plays, but his strength is managing the game, being smart, get, getting knowing the offense. I think he, get, he he's a smart guy, so he can give good feedback to the coaches from what he sees from the defense on the field and things like that. I think this year, um, and I don't think this became apparent until week three, or week four, I guess, technically. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, I don't think this became apparent until the OVU game, but Virginia Tech's defense is not going to be holding teams below 20 points this year. I mean, they might, they're going to be having some games where they're giving up 24, 35, maybe even 38 points sometimes. You never know, who, depending on who they're playing. Josh Jackson's not going to win a shootout. Um, Ryan Willis has a bigger arm. Um, he looks a little more squirrely in the pocket than Jackson. He looks, if not, he looks as fast on the read option. Now, we've seen a small sample size. But uh, he has a higher upside. He certainly has a bigger arm. He's more likely to win a shootout. He would have been more likely to lose a lower-scoring game that comes down to turnovers, like the UVA game last year or, 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 or something, or the Pitt game last year or something like that. He's more likely to, if Virginia Tech has to beat Duke 38-35 to 35 this week, Virginia Tech is more likely to score 38 points with Ryan Willis as the quarterback. Um, I didn't want Josh Jackson to get hurt. I'm sorry he got hurt because I really like Josh. Um, and I think Ryan Willis, he has a lower floor than Jackson, but a higher ceiling. I do want to mention that our Corey Van Dyke wrote a really great article that I read before I came over here about Ryan Willis and him taking over. It's on TechSideline.com and really invite uh, you to read that. But Will, you know, he's somebody, athlete, athletics run deep in his family's genes. And, you know, this seems like, you know, in Fuente even talked about this, not many times can you turn to a backup who already has as much Division One experience that he does. Coming from Kansas, and I believe, correct me if I'm wrong from the article, as a true freshman, he played in eight games in the Big 12 for Kansas. Started, yeah. So, you know, again, it's this is not a Kansas podcast either, but Kansas, Kansas got themselves into a situation during the Charlie Weiss years where they came to suffer a really serious scholarship debt. They, they at one point had something like 65 guys on scholarship. You're Kansas. You're not going to have a lot of talented guys. You hope you have 85 guys. And, and you know, Weiss did a lot of uh, – he took a lot of grad transfers. He took some JUCO transfers. A lot of them flamed out quickly. I mean, they, they got into a real mess as far as their scholarship numbers went. And Fuente coached against Kansas. I think he said when he was at Memphis, I think they had a, had a home and home. And he got to see Ryan Willis, and he said he was a very young quarterback on a very bad team. I don't remember if that was exactly Fuente's phrasing, but that's what he meant. Uh, so he's familiar with him. Uh, you know, my take on, on Ryan Willis is that uh, I think he's, with his legs and his arm, he's, he's more dynamic than Josh. And, uh, you know, the, the reset button's been pushed. You've discovered that your defense is not going to be the defense that you saw against Florida State. You know, that, that turned out to be a Florida State thing and not really a Virginia Tech thing. So you may need something a little different now. And, and it's not like Virginia Tech's the only team making that decision. Miami has booted Malik Rozier, I think is how he wants it pronounced, and put a backup in. Uh, it doesn't matter now because he's not the starter, right? Yeah, it doesn't really, <laughs> we're not going to be talking about him. But we're, we'll be typing his name, but we won't be saying it. Um, and Notre Dame, Brian Kelly has replaced uh, Wimbush. Was that their yeah, starter? Yeah. With, with a, so Ian Book. And, and Ian Book, who also has previous starting experience. So I think it was easier for, the, for him to make that decision 
because he knew exactly what he was getting in Ian Book because that guy yeah. started games before and won games for them. Right. Before. Well, and they had him coming in on um, short yardage packages, and they didn't like Wimbish under center. And the only reason I know that is my roommate Danny's a diehard Notre Dame fan. So if you need any uh, expertise, <laughs> any I can Notre help you Dame with that. scoop. Um, I do want to highlight though that his numbers, Ryan Willis, in his freshman year at Kansas in 2015, ten games played through for uh, nearly 2,000 yards, 1,719, eight touchdowns to 10 picks. He only played in six games in 16 and then transferred, uh, of course, and sat out last year coming to Virginia Tech. And then in the spring game, he made a lot of noise himself, had a terrific spring game, went 10 for 15 and uh, threw for over 200 yards. And so he's someone who, again, who has experience. I'm really excited to see him come in and play, though, against a Duke defense. And I think now's actually an appropriate time to transition into Duke. This is going to be a great test for this Virginia Tech team coming off a tough loss. It's going to be interesting. You know, I think Duke is smart and well-coached, but if there's any secondary in the country that's as young as Virginia Tech's, it's Duke's. Ah. Their oldest player is a one-third-year player at one of their safety spots. They start two redshirt freshmen and two true sophomores in their secondary. Uh, I really think, I mean, I think one thing Fuente's always been good at is he's always been able to fit the offense around the quarterback's strengths and weaknesses. Um, so sometimes – People wonder why we didn't maybe open up the offense more under Josh Jackson. Well, maybe we were doing exactly what fit Josh Jackson's strengths and weaknesses. Well, Fuente has said repeatedly that he's not hung up on stats. He's going to do what it takes to win. To win, exactly. Uh, so I, if Fuente sees the same thing I see, you know, we're going to have Virginia Tech's going to have to continue to run the football. But I do think they need to get it pretty aggressive offensively. I think they need, Willis has a big arm. We know he's got a big arm. That throw he made in the spring game, that throw he made against William and Mary. Mm-hmm. That back shoulder it, fade, yeah, wasn't it, down the sideline? Yeah, it was a great throw. Um, I think they need to go after Duke. I think they need to be really aggressive. Uh, I think he reminds me a lot of Michael Brewer, not from a stature standpoint, because he's a much bigger guy than Brewer with a stronger arm and all that, from, but from a mentality standpoint. They're both from Big 12 country. They they're, they both come from backgrounds where they're probably used to throwing the ball 50 times in, in a game. Uh, so so for the record, Willis does come from Kansas. Right, yes. Right. Exactly. So it's just a different mentality of offense in that part of the country. So I, I think I think you should embrace that and let him go out and attack Duke and whatever happens happens. And this feels like and almost just because of the strengths and the weaknesses. Normally, you think of Duke and Virginia Tech, and just off history, you don't think of a high-scoring shootout. No, but this could. one has the potential. Not saying it's going to be Big Twelve, you know, sixty to fifty, but this one could get into the thirties and the forties. Yeah, the only time I remember a shootout between two, Tech and Duke was that triple overtime game. Oh, that was that was a tough one. Was a quadruple overtime? I don't remember. It was a lot of overtime. Most overtimes in a Lane Stadium game, yeah, I believe, was that yeah, Duke game. Yeah. Definitely true, and that guy that game got up into the forties, but only I think it was forty five, forty three at the yeah, end. Yeah, I think yeah. you're exactly right. Well, I would do, so we just touched on Duke a little bit defensively, and I do want to hit on their offense, and then we'll come back to our predictions towards the end of the podcast. But offensively, this is a Duke team who is four zero, who did go down to Waco with a backup quarterback, backup quarterback and beat Baylor. They did defeat Northwestern, who won ten games last season, and as Coach Fuente has alluded to, this is in his eyes, the best Duke team that he has faced in his career at Virginia Tech. So I'm, I'm curious to see how this offense looks uh, for Duke as well, Will. So at this point in recording the podcast, here, here's where we are, TSL as an organization. Chris has done a lot of research and has been working on his preview and pro- has probably written a lot of it. I've been over working on the uh, roster card. 
And so the process of building a roster card, I can't include Duke's whole roster in it. I have to, um, like they have 109 players listed on their roster, and I have to cut it down to 86 to fit on our roster card. So we go through, Chris and I go through the depth chart, and we decide which players to delete. We deleted a bunch of freshmen because they're not on the depth chart. So what you're seeing in Duke, and this isn't an offensive-specific comment. Chris can probably address that better. What you're seeing in Duke is you're seeing a program that has had the same coaching staff in place for a long time now. Um, they are they're hitting their stride as far as they don't play guys unless they're ready. You know, I think Virginia Tech's in a situation right now where they're having to play a lot of young guys. Duke passed that point a long time ago. Um, yes, they will have teams some years that are better than others, but the program as a whole is functioning exactly like David Cutcliffe wants it to function. And that's my biggest worry is that, yes, it's Fuente's third year, but he's not, he's not where he's taking this program eventually. That's going to happen next year, maybe the year after that. Cutcliffe is already there, and that's what worries me about this game. Speaking on David Cutcliffe, when you think about him and the, what, the job he has done at Duke, there's not a coach in the country I don't think that admires and respects David Cutcliffe, the offensive coordinator of Tennessee under Peyton Manning. And, you know, again, when I, when I grew up, when I was in elementary school and middle school, I always remember Duke being the doormat of college football. They were the equivalency of Kansas now, or a Rutgers. I mean, that's how bad. Kansas destroyed Rutgers. If that they did. Rutgers. <laughs> but he goes to Duke, and he has made that a eight, nine win program since he's gotten there. And, and you, you hear Justin Fuente on the ACC teleconference, at the press conference, and even Cutcliffe talking about Foster and Fuente. The two sides have so much respect for each other. I, I just think that the, the tech coaching staff admires the job that Cutcliffe has done. You know, for the resources he has, I doubt that there's a better coach in the country than David Cutcliffe. Um, I bet there's not a happier coach in the country than David Cutcliffe. He turned down Tennessee. Keep in mind in the offseason. I don't blame him. I know. But <laughs> I mean, he's happy at Duke. Look, you get to recruit smart kids. All right, you get to recruit at a high enough level where you get good players. But you're not dealing with all these four-star and five-star kids that demand early playing time, or and if they don't get it, they're going to transfer in one year. I mean, so he's been able to redshirt a lot of guys because they have because their players are okay with redshirting. Um, there's this is a different type of mentality there. Different, you're dealing with a different type of recruit. Uh, I, I think uh, you deal with really smart kids on a daily basis who are able to pick up what you teach them. It's a less frustrating job, I think. Mm-hmm. I, I think I think he has probably has a little more fun going to work every day than most coaches. Well, and Cutcliffe himself doesn't have a big ego, so not at all. I, I don't want to put thoughts in his head, but I'm guessing he doesn't care that he's coaching in front of maybe thirty thousand fans a game. You know, he he's not a guy that needs to be watched by one hundred and ten thousand fans or you know eighty ninety thousand fans. He's just a really good fit for that place. I feel like it's a perfect place, and he's even said that he wants to finish his career at Duke. I think that was something he said when he was targeted for Tennessee. He's, he's happy to finish there. So, yeah. All right, so let's go ahead. I'll actually switch this up. Let's go ahead and get our game predictions now while we're talking about Duke, uh, and I'll bring up our Tech Sideline poll question of the week because it has to do with that. Um, give me your prediction with a score and tell me if your prediction has changed since you guys did your uh, preseason rankings of what Virginia Tech would go record-wise. You know, I'll be honest, as of the time of recording this podcast, I've written approximately one quarter of my preview, and I've not studied Duke completely. So my prediction could change between now and tomorrow when I finish my preview. Okay. Um, I, considering Duke's experience level at receiver, you know, I would give them the advantage. But at the same time, 
their quarterback, who I think is an athletic guy who knows the offense and things like that, but he's only completing 49% of his passes. He came in at the end of the Northwestern game and was 2 of 2, and then he was 12 of 30 against Baylor, and then he was a very pedestrian 15 of 27 against North Carolina Central, who's an FCS team. Um, Duke, it's impressive, yes, to go on the road and, and beat Northwestern. Northwestern lost at home to Akron the next week, and they gave up 39 points to Akron and 21 points to Duke. Um, yeah, it's if you go on the road and beat Baylor, sure, but look at what Baylor has happened since since the, the scandal they had. They're just not a good football team anymore. I don't know how good Duke is. That's my point. I think they're good. I think this is his best team, but is this a eight and four Duke team, which is a very beatable Duke team, or are they ten and two? Right, you know, I, I don't know yet. Um, just based on experience level, and I, I don't know the mentality of Tech's team right now. You never know how young players are going to respond. You know, they, they could come out like gangbusters and play a really good game. That doesn't guarantee that they're going to win because Duke is so experienced. Um, or they could still be down on themselves and play a bad football game. Quite frankly, um, I do expect a much better performance. That's my gut feel, but. Uh, Right now, like I said, my, my, I could change this between now and tomorrow, but I can't in good conscience pick Virginia Tech to beat an unbeaten team on the road the week after losing to Old Dominion. And I don't know, I don't know what score I'd pick, 34-30, something like that maybe. I'm kind of in the same place. Whenever I do these score predictions, I ask myself, if they played this game ten times, what do I think would happen, mm. you know, on, yeah. av- on average? Um, I think – and again, it's a limited sample size, and we don't really know how the tech coaching staff is going to resp- and players are going to respond and adjust. But I think what you're going to see the rest of the year, if what we've been told about uh, Ryan Willis is true, um, I think you'll see a, a guy who will be able to move the ball a lot. But I think he'll make some critical turnovers too. That's what we've been told that that's what he does in practice. Now, who knows? He may go out there and throw 15 touchdowns and just two interceptions over the next few games. But based on what we think we know. I think we're in for a roller coaster ride. Um, I don't think you really know what's going to happen from week to week. You know, you look at, you go back to that, I think it was a 2014 season where Brewer, Michael Brewer, threw a critical interception late in the Georgia Tech game that, that lost the game, if I remember yeah. my details correctly. Yeah. I think you're going to see some of that from Ryan Willis. I think, I think the Hokies as a team are going to be so up and down that they'll, they'll shock you one week and throw you the next week with what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just think if you played this one ten times, you heard what I said a few minutes ago, that Duke's program is, is where they want it right now. Um, I just – I think if you played this thing ten times, Duke would win most of them, you know, and I can't even put a score on it. And they may surprise us – Tech may surprise us all by just coming out and lighting it up. Yeah, I might have been too high on my 34-30 prediction because, like I said, Duke has a quarterback who's completing fewer than 50% of his passes. So, But then again, we saw what Virginia Tech's secondary looked like last week. So and, Duke and, is probably saying, man, it's a good chance to get above 50% passing this And year, Trevon right? Hill is out. How much pressure is Tech going to get on the quarterback? Probably not a lot because yeah. Virginia Tech's only really good pass rusher. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and say 28-21 Duke. And here's why a couple of things. Advantages and things that are going to go well for Ryan Willis is that the run game has looked its best that it has at any point right now with Stephen Peoples going for over 150 yards, two touchdowns, had a great game last week, and it wasn't all about McLeese. They did it. They were able to give it to Peoples, and he did his job. However, when I think of Duke, I think of an even-keeled, 
program each and every week. You know exactly what you're going to get each and every week out of Duke. And because of the uh, the big playability that Willis brings, but you just don't know what the turnover, they're not going to turn the ball over. They're not going to have many penalties. And I think for that reason and being at home, I wouldn't be surprised. I'm not locked on this pick myself either, but I'd go a touchdown for Duke in this one. Would I be surprised if Willis comes out and maybe lights it up and really shows people, hey, you know, I've transferred, I'm here, I'm ready to make a name for myself. It wouldn't surprise me one bit, but I just – just too many unknowns with the youth for Virginia Tech. So looking ahead a little bit, if we're all picking Duke to win this week, and if that turns out to be the case, then Virginia Tech's going to lose three games in a row most likely. I mean, Notre Dame has looked like a much different offense with that new quarterback. I watched the majority of that game against Wake Forest, and they – Oh, yeah. Granted, Wake Forest is not good. They're not good defensively, especially. They got lit up by Boston College, who, who then got shut down by 0-3. Purdue, Purdue yeah. Right. So. I, I need another week of data. I got to see yeah. Virginia Tech against Duke, and I got to see what, what Notre Dame does. Keep in mind, they've got to go to Stanford this week. Or, no, I'm sorry, they're home against Stanford. Home my apologies, Stanford. yes. Yeah. Didn't Stanford just lose? No, they just beat Oregon in yeah. overtime. They they came oh, back. my gosh. What by, a, terrific what a game. game. What a game. They were down 24-7. to See, I was, um, I was depressed in the – and just stop watching football. While I was monitoring our message boards is really what I was doing. Now, let, let's see what our uh, our Tech Sideline poll question of the week had to say about this. And I basically asked for our fans to give a prediction. We have exactly 400 votes on the dot. And uh, basically who would win against uh, either Virginia Tech or Duke. And I gave the options of win more than seven points, win less than seven, or lose greater than seven or less than seven. 34%, the majority, say Tech wins by less than seven points. Uh, 32% says Tech wins by more than seven points. 19% says lose greater than seven. And 15% says lose less than seven. See, I'm in that 15% group. I think lose less than seven or less. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be a close game either way. I, I agree. I, mean, I agree I just, with that. Yeah. I can't in good conscience pick Virginia Tech to win by more than seven. Uh Against 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 this team on the road, although the, I mean, they have, they have the talent to, and you know, let's face it, I mean, there's just there's not a lot of film on Ryan Willis. Exactly. So, well, there is. That's why Baker Mayfield beat my Jets. There was no tape on him. That okay, that's exactly that, that, the reason. Yeah. So, uh, all right. So, I do want to say this uh, before we move on to my the, the final topic that we have. Uh, the game is a seven o'clock kick. It's in Durham. It's going to be on ESPN two. Uh, you can fully expect, I'm sure, to have tweets from Chris and Will throughout the game message boards. I'm See, sure. I'll be at the game. I'm not oh, you're there. Okay, good. Okay, See, gotcha. you're, you're not going to get them from me either because I, I couldn't even tweet from ODU's stadium. There were only twenty thousand fans there, and I still couldn't get a signal. Yeah, I could gotcha. text, but I couldn't do anything that took you know actual real data. Yeah, I'm going as a fan, so I'll, good. I'll okay, well, well, I'm sure Corey and my I'm, I know I'll be tweeting myself. So looking forward to that one again. Uh, Duke ranked 22nd. Virginia Tech had the second most receiving votes to get inside the top 25 this week. So a win against Duke more than likely would put Virginia Tech back in the top 25, which would really help, I think, the case for uh, the Notre Dame game, just getting a um, a, a nice time slot, which right now it's in that six-day hold for that either 3.30 or 8 o'clock p.m. kick. At least it's not noon either way. Yeah, exactly. I'm not not sure we deserve anything later than – noon after last week but uh we'll have to wait and see i'm still hopeful for that eight o'clock kick it kind of depends on what everybody else does so last thing guys uh the other big storyline that came out of the old dominion game was virginia tech at noon on sunday um dismissing trevon hill from the football team uh coach fuente put out a statement we've loosely touched on it just 
the talent that he has uh, has um, and and the uh, experience that he has on the defensive line. But what did you make of Coach Fuente dismissing him and the statement that he put out on Sunday? I think some people are under the impression that it was a that decision was taken in a in a vacuum as a one time thing. As Trevon Hill did something wrong one time, and Justin Fuente got mad after the game and dismissed him for it. But it was the last incident in a long line of incidents as far as we know. And we don't know exactly what happened, but there was some kind of an altercation. We've heard details, but we don't know anything for a fact. But something went on that was not good. Something went on that made Fuente say, look, I, I can't put up with this anymore. Um, what we know about Trevon Hill is that you know he went to Salem in high school in Virginia Beach, but he didn't actually graduate from there. Um, he, uh, from what we understand, and uh, you know he was forced out of that school basically and had to finish at the Renaissance Academy, which is, uh, despite its cool sounding name, is, is <laughs> that is a cool sounding name. It's kind of a place for people with discipline problems. Um, so he has a history of, of having discipline problems. And, uh, and I, I think there have been so many incidents that have added up when you've got a really young football team. Young people emulate older people that they're around all the time. You know, if you don't dismiss Trevon Hill now after this, what if two years from now you've got three Trevon Hills on your team, right? And then after that, you've got six once people learn from those guys. Uh, so you got to nip those incidents in the bud, and it's a tough situation to, to be in. And I'm sure it's no fun as a coach to it's, ever it's, do that. It's no fun as a coach no, to it, do it, that. No, it really bothered him to do that. It really bothered him to do it, absolutely. Uh, because, it, honestly, it does, it's not going to do Trevon any good. Um, Trevon is more likely to have a successful life if he had kept playing football at Virginia Tech. You know, this is a lose-lose situation, at, at least for a short term, for both sides because hurts Virginia Tech. It's our best pass rusher. Um, I think it will be beneficial for Virginia Tech long term, but short term, I don't think it's going to help him for sure. One of the things I heard, and I really shouldn't tell this story because it's from a long time ago. It has nothing to do with Trevon Hill from a long time ago and I never really got details or verification but one of the things I heard was at the end of George Welsh's career at Virginia that he kind of lost the team and that you could trace it back to a player or small group of players who came in at a certain point and gradually infected the team with a bad attitude whether it was towards George Welsh or the program in general or what I don't know but it was whatever it was was allowed to grow and fester and I think coaches worry about that stuff because, you know, football is a uh, – it, it's really – you see it all the time. Look at Florida State. Do you think, especially early in the season, that, that Florida State was focused and had the chemistry and trusted Willie Taggart and was really listening to him? It doesn't look like it. When you lose a team, man, you've really lost them, you know. So it's not something coaches talk about a lot, but I think they worry about it and think about it a lot, you know. Yes, I need that guy from a talent standpoint, but how's it affecting my team? And I think that's a case of what you're dealing with here. So to close with that, you look at the 2015 members of the recruiting class: Mook Reynolds, Donis Alexander, and Jervon Hill. So so much talent there. Just you know, but at the end of the day, and and I think that it's something to keep in mind too. Sometimes when new coaches come in to a program, and you didn't necessarily. It's not. I want to. It's not that you're saying that. They're not your kids, but you didn't go into their houses and recruit them and get to know them on a personal level. Sometimes it works out great. And I look at, I, I think, you know, just, I think Coach Fuente and Sam Rogers hit it off 
right off the bat, sure, right? Yeah. You could see, but sometimes it just doesn't click, and you have to get the people who buy into your program in there. And sometimes, you, as Will just said perfectly, you have to make sure everyone's on the same page. And I, I applaud Justin Fuente for making a, a really difficult decision. I'm sure no coach ever wants to, but he had to do it. I think this is the first one of those, of all the guys who've been booted, for lack of a better term, this is the first one where he actually had to make the decision. I think Adonis Alexander obviously wasn't eligible. Right. That was a university thing. He wasn't coming back. Uh, and it wasn't if, even if Justin Fuente wanted him back, he, he would not have been allowed to come back by the university. Luke Reynolds gets a, a arrested for a felony. Luke Reynolds kicked himself off the team, right. as far as I'm concerned. Um, this is the only situation where there was a decision that had to be made. He clearly didn't take that decision lightly. I mean, the way he phrased his press release, Fuente, I mean, is he consulted the administration, meaning he talked to Whit Babcock about it. He consulted his assistant coaches, I mean, just to determine the right course of action. So I, I don't think that's a situation where uh, where he just said, yeah, this is what we're going to do, and just flew off the seat of his pants or whatever. But uh, I, I think that there was a lot of thought that went into this about what's the right thing to do. Um, I, so we'll see. Um, I, we'll see if that's beneficial. I, I don't think it's going to be beneficial short term, I'll be honest with you. And if it is beneficial two years down the road, it's not going to be anything that you'll be able to see. Yeah. Right. You, know, you won't be able to see. If, this, if the team has great chemistry, nobody's going to remember back and say, oh, <laughs> we have great chemistry because they kicked Javon. Nobody's going to go in front of the press and say, the reason we're so good here in 2020, it goes back to when Justin Fuente dismissed Travon Hill. That's right. when the program really started to take off. Right. Exactly. Yeah, it's not anything like that. All right, well, that is going to wrap up the discussion part of the podcast. We do have to get to, I'm sure, though, uh, as I'm sitting here wondering, and I just keep thinking about what is the lyric in Will Stewart's Twitter bio, <laughs> uh, and I, I, I don't think I know it, but I will repeat it again. We said at the beginning of the podcast, I am not the only traveler who has not repaid his debt. So that's the opening lyric to a song called The Night We Met by Lord Huron. I'm not a not a huge band, not well known, I guess. Uh, I listen to Spectrum, Sirius XM, Spectrum, Channel 28. I kind of come and go on it. But that song is, uh, if you've ever loved and lost, that is the song for you. It's, it's just about what he's saying is, if I could go back to the night we met and tell myself, don't do it. <laughs> you know, just turn and walk away. Um, and then there's another great lyric from that where it says, he sings, I had all and then most of you, some and now none of you. Oh, that's just a heart-crushing lyric, you know. So I really like the song. And uh, so if you've never uh, – I can't speak for Lord Huron as a, as a group or anything like that. Never bought an album or anything like that. But, but the vocals and the lyrics on that song are outstanding. So go give it a listen. Hey, last thing. I actually forgot to say, bring this up. Guys, UVA is 3-1. and one. Bryce Perkins is all over SportsCenter. UVA is back. Over, overreaction or not overreaction? It's an overreaction because Louisville is awful. <laughs> they might as well have me at quarterback. You were this great high school player we're talking. I mean, hey, I, I did have to bring it up because that hurdle he did have was impressive. So I, 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 I haven't seen the highlights. I, I think, I think they, he's a better – I think they need him – I think they need his mobility and things like that. But uh, they started. Didn't they start off four and one or something last year, and they went on a bad losing streak towards the end of the year. I mean, once the schedule toughens up, 
we'll find out a lot more about everybody. There's just too many moving parts this early in the season. And I was just having some sarcasm. Virginia Tech is one of those moving parts. It's it's hard to figure out what's going on. Guys, what's going on on TechSideline.com this week? They mentioned Corey's got a great article about Ryan Willis. I invite you to read. what else going on? We have a nice wrestling article by you today. By Evan Hughes. Have, have you, are you going to run that today? I'm so by the time the podcast. By the time this podcast is posted, it will probably it will already yeah. be on the site. Awesome. Yeah. I will say, and I didn't want to, you know, so I, it, it was a tough weekend for tech athletics, obviously, in the state of football. But mm-hmm. for wrestling, um, for Makai Lewis, this redshirt freshman, to go on an international stage and win a gold medal um, – is a really, really big deal. That was like a junior world championship. Junior world championship. He was the only American on the team to get a gold medal. Team USA finished second in the event. And he was going up against some wrestlers who had won a lot of things before. And it's interesting because collegiate wrestling, folks, is folk-style wrestling. International stage is freestyle. It's two completely different types of wrestling that you have to learn. This was his first international event of his career and only his third freestyle event. So he's doing all of this in the offseason, and it goes to, he brought, you know, Coach Roby's brought in guys like uh, Jared Frere and Frank Molinaro, who are Olympian wrestlers, and they're teaching them how to do freestyle wrestling. And this is just a, a really exciting moment for Virginia Tech wrestling, and one that I really hope that Hokie Nation understands that this is a really really big deal to go and win a gold medal on a world stage and this is a kid who's never wrestled for tech he redshirted last year so he, you'll, yep. you'll be seeing him for the first time this this coming season so if the u.s finished second who finished first that's a great question i did not see who finished yeah, first who cares that. but <laughs> but you know anyway so just really cool it's gonna be a great read you know we've got some quotes from coach roby in there and then it's also their uh schedule has been released i got to talk to him on monday they have a lot of really really competitive um non-conference matchups and you know the acc championship Championships are going to be in Castle Coliseum. You know, they've brought in three graduate transfers to wrestle, and I, I really do believe that this could be one of the best wrestling teams that Virginia Man, you, Tech See, so you're getting had. me all worked up. So they, they wrestle UVA in the Moss Center this year, correct? Yes, that, so that's their big match, folks, where um, they're dual meet. Well, they'll bring in a team, and they'll wrestle in Moss. It's kind of like the big one to get the fans in the circle. And it's yeah. neat because you've got the side. It, it's in a theater, basically. Yeah. And people can sit on the sides. and L, I mean – it is going to be really so, so you have a really good vantage if you're up high you have a really good vantage point looking down on yes. the stage where the mat is and i haven't been but that's just the way i'm interpreting i, I need it. to go i've seen pictures it looks like a really cool presentation and then don't they finish the regular season with nc state so, in castle so last year the regular season acc title came down to the dual meet with north carolina state it was Man. at nc state the match it went down to the heavyweight match which is the final one the winner of that wins the match which wins the regular season acc and the tech wrestler lost in overtime of that individual match so and then virginia tech went on to win its second consecutive acc tournament championship so to have virginia at home to have nc state at home and to have the acc tournament uh, the championships in Castle. Um, you know, Coach Roby says he wants to make it the most attended ACC championship in history of wrestling, and he's really excited. And I'm really excited for Coach. Well, and, and I think that uh, you know we've been covering wrestling at Tech Sideline, and we do have a dedicated wrestling message board. We used to have the wrestling fans come over and talk on our Olympic sports board, but during wrestling season, it got to where they dominated the conversation, so we gave them their own board. Um, I, I think that we can. Now, now, we're not cheerleaders for the programs. We're not homers for the programs. But I think that we can 
make an effort to try to bring more fans out to this and make it a bigger deal. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I'm looking not to go off on this, but I just want to make sure Makai got a shout-out, and congratulations to him. He's the first tech wrestler at the time of wrestling in the program to ever medal and to ever go on the internet. Uh, Ty Walls, who's a volunteer assistant coach, got a bronze the year after he graduated, so yeah. I think two years. But anyways, big deal. Big deal for the program this weekend. That's so. Fantastic. Awesome. Well, that's going to do it for this week's uh, Tech Sideline podcast presented by the Fisher Law Firm. Thanks so much to everyone for chiming in uh, to our Twitter poll question of the week and for questions. And we look forward to talking to you next week, recapping the Tech Duke game. You guys appreciate it. Will, Chris, have a great week. Evan, you saying so long and have a great weekend, Tech fans.